Welcome, everybody. Today, we're honored to be joined by Kendall Phillips, a professor in the Department of Communication and Rhetorical Studies at Syracuse University. His work focuses on the ways popular culture intersects with discursive and affective tensions within society, particularly with attention to scholarly conversations on public memory, controversy, and popular cinema. Among his other work, Kendall is the author of three books on the rhetoric of horror films, most recent of which is entitled A Place of Darkness, The Rhetoric of Horror in Early American Cinema. Kendall, thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to chat with you too. Yeah, so, so Kendall, we wanted to start off by just asking what piqued your interest in studying horror films from a rhetorical perspective? So in what ways did your earlier scholarly trajectory lead you to this particular genre of film and maybe also like film in general. Gotcha. Well, there's the, there's the real story that is as with many people's careers, completely arbitrary and capricious. <laughs> and then there's the academic rationalization that I subsequently did. So the, the very quick version of the real story is I was a graduate student uh, at Penn state in the speech communication department and was uh, entering my last semester of coursework. And I had not yet taken a course with a, a legendary figure in the field, Tom Benson. And, and all my peers said, you can't leave Penn State without taking a Tom Benson class. And nice. sure, he sure. was teaching a class in uh, uh, rhetoric of film. And I said, I don't really care anything about film. At that time, I was focused on rhetoric of science. And I thought, I, I don't really care about film. That's, that's silly. Why would anybody study that? And so I took that class and it was really instrumental. I would say from the kind of more academic theoretical side, I would say for me in whatever hodgepodge of stuff I would call my work, my focus or interest has always been around the notion of controversy and dissent. And so I've always been interested in the sorts of things that get people angry enough to write letters to the editor or go protest or you know any, any number of other sort of responses. And that was what had motivated my interest in rhetoric of science. Initially, that shifted partly through Tom Benson's class, to thinking about popular culture as a site of controversy, which was kind of surprising and interesting. And then that also kind of led to the work in, in public memory. So within that, at least within the rhetoric of film side, it didn't take long to realize that while there are lots of different kinds of films that create controversy, there was one genre that sort of promised to be controversial, right. and that was horror. And so that's how I ended up there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that that's primarily how Calvin and I came to your work in the first place was, you know, in a contemporary rhetorical theory class where we were reading about, you know, your work on like a rhetoric of controversy and your, you know, theoretical contributions to our understanding of the ways that that functions in the public sphere. But it's really fascinating to hear about how you've how you've sort of made the link there between that and, and popular culture, which I think is like. I think that's a really important part of studying the ways that controversies sort of discursively play themselves out and how those tensions kind of manifest themselves in, in culture. Yeah, I think for me, what one of the things that, that makes it the most interesting is, and I don't know quite the right phrasing for this, but it's kind of like a non-interest-based controversy. So like if the city of Syracuse says, we're going to build a highway through the middle of your neighborhood, I have a clear interest. Right. right. I, mean, I, I have a reason to not want <laughs> right. that to happen. Right. Or they're going to raise my taxes or the government wants to go to war. All those have pretty direct sort of almost uh, John Dewey level indirect consequences for me. And so I see that. But then you look at like, a novel has been written and exists in the world, or a film has been made and people are going to see it, the easiest thing is you can say, well, I simply won't go see it, game over. Right. Uh, right, but right. that's not the way the rhetoric of pop culture or the controversies of pop culture work. People feel so shocked, 
horrified, offended that this thing could even exist, yeah. let alone exist in public, that they then go out to the barricades and petitions and picket and et cetera, et cetera. Is there yeah. something about film as a medium that that generates those kinds of like non-interest based controversies? Like because people sort of see it as you've created something like you've put something into the world that feels too real. There's an almost revulsion at this existing in people's life worlds. No, I mean, that's actually a very perceptive point and really is, I think, very accurate if you look at the history of film. Um, I've always said that I think films have been much more generative of controversies, at least in the U.S. Now, my English lit friends all look at me and, and with snide <laughs> expressions. And, and to be honest, I was not an English major. I came from psychology. So I, what I know about literature, you could fit into a, a little you know, small bucket and still have room for Moby Dick or something. But, sure. <laughs> um, that's just not, gotcha. my, uh, not, my, not my field. But, but I will say, to, to your point, if you go back and look at the discourse surrounding moving pictures – particularly in like, say, 1907, 1908, which is, which is just a year or so after motion picture theaters pop up. They pop up actually in 1905 in Pittsburgh, of all places, yeah. you should know. Hey, here hey, we are. Here we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, there it goes. Who ever said nothing good came out of Pittsburgh? There go. <laughs> oh, we're going to get into that later. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I definitely. We want Pittsburgh. to talk about Romero. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, but as soon as motion pictures are, are kind of circulating, there's this widespread public conversation about what one popular magazine called the psychic force of motion pictures. And there was this genuine belief that moving pictures could somehow circumnavigate their way around uh, your rational thinking or your morality and go right kind of into your core brain. So much so, as much as this was kind of in popular discourse, this is actually written into the Supreme Court decision of Mutual vs. Ohio, which is the 1915 decision that decides that uh, motion pictures can be censored. Right. Wow. Motion pictures are not protected by the First Amendment. Yeah. And one of the core arguments was not only uh, were motion pictures were not speech, but they were dangerous by virtue of the way they presented information. And so the state not only could censor, but the Supreme Court argued the states had an obligation to censor motion pictures in ways they didn't censor other mediums. Wow, that's fascinating. I had no idea. And what what yeah. was the film in 1915 that generated that case? It was, uh, it was I think it was the James Boys versus, uh, uh, the James Boys in Missouri the case was actually brought by a mutual film corporation that had released a number of films uh, against uh, the Ohio Industrial Commission, which was, so for some reason, the organ of state government that ran the censorship. And it was kind of an omnibus case sort of challenging Ohio Industrial Commission's right to require that films be pre-screened and certified. Oh, gotcha. uh, and of course, the, the, the Mutual uh, Film Corporation argued on kind of two fronts. One was commerce, like that this is interfering with their right to pursue commerce. But the other, which is actually kind of the secondary argument in the, in the briefs was, oh yeah, and there's this thing called the First Amendment, and so we shouldn't have prior <laughs> restraint by our government organization. Right. Uh, and that was actually the law of the land until I think some film person's going to, I'm always bad with details, but I think it's 1952. There was a second Supreme Court case that struck that down. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. How how surprising that the interests of capital were more more <laughs> more important than liberal values uh, in, in that oh, yeah. discourse. It's your free speech. <laughs> I just want to make money. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, so I think I, I think we we do really want to get into the into the history of horror of film as a genre. But before we do that, I was wondering if you could maybe give us you know your definition of 
horror film, at least in American cinema. We can at least circumscribe it, like put it in a little bit of a box. In American culture, what has horror film like come to be defined as? What makes it distinct from other genres? And yeah, just kind of how has that developed over the course of the years? Sure. I mean, that's a that's a big question. I mean, I would say from a kind of theoretical or methodological standpoint, I've always hung more or less with the, uh, I would call it the kind of discursive definition of the genre, which is horror films or whatever people say a horror film is. Got sure. it. You're right. Um, right. Which, which is not very satisfying to kind of literary purists who want <laughs> to have a core essential definition. But it's a funny thing. I mean, horror in some ways, unlike some other genres where you can say there are kind of definitive elements, right? So if it's a Western, we expect there's going to be a cowboy and probably a gunslinger, and it's probably going to be set in the West. Or if it's a romance, there's going to be two people who are in love, but there's difficulty. I mean, there's a whole set of those, but horror across its, at least the history of films that have been called horror span everything from giant monsters attacking cities to crazed people killing uh, uh, other people to films where you never know really what happened. So you think about like the original Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Right. You never knew if that was uh, supernatural, <laughs> not supernatural. Horror can be set in space. It can be set in the West. It can be set in urban or rural settings. It can be in the past. It can be in the present. It can be in the future. So I think probably, you know, it, it, it is a very much a discourse issue. I think it's also, that that's kind of the challenge of what makes horror interesting rhetorically is to make horror, you kind of have to always find culture's sort of sensitive edge and poke at it, right? I mean, so horror always has to be kind of pushing the boundary of what we believe, what we accept, what we're willing to acknowledge. Otherwise, you know, this, this is the history of horror is always... The, the genre kind of falls into a kind of moribund state where, oh my God, it's another Halloween or another <laughs> Friday the 13th, et cetera. Right, um, right. But as soon as it gets tired, and this is the thing, horror has been unlike other kind of popular genres, as soon as horror starts to get too familiar and kind of tired and people lose interest in, say, haunted houses or slashers or whatever, someone comes along with a very different kind of film that sparks the genre back up. So it's, it's, it, what, fi what fascinates me from a rhetorical perspective is that the genre itself is constantly evolving in relationship to its own history and to the culture it's kind of uh, emerging in. You, you quote Robin Wood in your book, Dark Directions. You quote Robin Wood and say, one might say that the true subject of the horror genre is the struggle for recognition of all that our civilization represses or oppresses. It's reemergence dramatized as in our nightmares. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a good, although I, I, I'm not, I would say, you know, pushing back a little from Robin Wood, I'm not sure everything's about repression, but I do think it's everything. I do think horror is consistently about the dark edges whether it's the things we've repressed or the things that we acknowledge but but maybe don't fully acknowledge. Um, but no, absolutely. I, th I think this is the function, I think also culturally of the horror film is, at least when it's done right, is it pushes us into a kind of uncomfortable look at our own reflection. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, from a rhetorical standpoint, that's that's always been, you know, through the course of doing this podcast, one of the things we always like to explore is like, what does rhetorical knowledge mean from a practical perspective? One answer to that might be making the invisible visible, right? That you can sort of right. see beneath 
these things that would otherwise remain tacit. And so in a way, horror is sort of like this very like richly rhetorical genre in that it is it, it's all about culture and it's all about the things that are either repressed or either just sort of like the more like the dark areas that we don't really want to look beneath. Right. No, absolutely. I, I've, I've always felt or at least since I've kind of gotten involved in the study of this, that horror has a kind of uniquely interesting finger on the pulse of the culture. And that as a rhetorical scholar of something like public culture, I'm actually surprised that there's not more interest in the field. I mean, there, there's people doing great work, so I don't want to dismiss. Well, there, there, there will be a lot more interest yeah. once we put this podcast out. So <laughs> Obviously, this will yes. change the field. Thank you. <laughs> this is our intervention. Yes, exactly. Um, actually, yeah. on second thought, since this is my area, I don't want other people, so we'll just delete this now. Okay, we're not going to put this out. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, no, this will just be for us. Uh, so. no, but, yeah, this is our private conversation. Yeah. Right. Um, um, no, I, do, I mean, I think, I think there are... I will say there are great people doing good work on rhetoric of horror like Josh Gunn and Claire King and, yeah, absolutely. and Jim Creel, et cetera. And there's good work in rhetoric and pop culture, but I, I'm, I guess I'm still surprised that there's not more interest in kind of the way this gets generated and the way, you know, again, I'm thinking of like uh, my colleague and friend Bernadette Califel, the way that horror is not just about reflecting the negative, but is also kind of an empowering thing, particularly for kind of marginalized folks yeah. who can yeah. look at monsters and, and horror and monstrosity and sort of say, yeah, that kind of frames me. So I think there's a lot of rich, there's great work going on there, but there's such a rich vein of material in our culture that that I, I encourage more people to look at it again. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think just, just one more genre point about this, like I think horror is fascinating as well because it's a very direct genre similar to comedy in that like if it scares you it's horror <laughs> just <laughs> it like makes it makes you laugh it's comedy right right, yeah, right. Yeah. um and so i think that allows for the kind of flexibility and dynamism that that you trace really well in your in your work thanks yeah it's funny when i when i because i do a few talks and, and then the the, the the this work kind of does circulate a little bit in the world outside of the uh, ivory tower people always say to me oh i don't like horror movies but inevitably they'll say like, oh, but I loved Halloween or I loved, you know, Silence of the Lambs. And I'll say, yeah, well, that's no, that's not a horror movie because I liked it. It's a, that's a very odd definition of a genre. Like anything I like is not part of that. Like, yeah. 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 Which is also interesting. I mean, I, I we definitely want to get into the history here, but I also think that's to me, that's always seemed a little bit why horror is such a con. It's literally a polarizing genre because some people you know seem to approach film because you know because it brings them comfort or because it's you know it's it's showing you something that you want to see whereas other people who are like really big into horror movies the, some people some people seek it out for that for that purpose of like you know you want to be scared or you want to sort of like push your own boundaries yeah it's funny horror is really the only genre that says Give me your $11 and I will show you things you don't want to see. And if I'm really successful, you'll hide your eyes and not see something. It's a, it's a, it's a very odd bargain that we go into. But yeah, we, but, I, but I think the other part of that, and, and kind of to connect back to the earlier point about comedy, you know, what, what horror and comedy kind of are, and Linda Williams made this point a long time ago, but they're body genres, which is that if they work, they impact your body. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. So a good comedy, I, I don't go like, I mean, a good comedy, I don't just say, that was funny. Oh, that was funny too. <laughs> right. You, you burst out. Just like a good horror movie, you don't say, oh, that was a scary moment. Like yeah, you right. shriek or you yeah. flinch right. or whatever it is. Right. And so then the, the, when you get back to the kind of individuality of that, that either hits you at that level or it doesn't. 
So you're either scared by it or you just go like, okay, that was... And I think particularly for both comedy and horror, if they don't work... It's hard for comedy or horror to not work but still be okay. Because usually if it doesn't work, it's like a disaster. As opposed to, say, a drama... I can watch a drama and say, eh, I thought the acting was clunky and I didn't like the plot, but overall it was fine, right? Horror either... It's like a, it's such a bar of bodily experience, it either works or it really, really doesn't. Yeah, so can you take us through some of the major, I guess, historical periods of the genre? So times and contexts in which the ways that filmmakers have been able to generate those bodily responses of fear have changed. Yeah, no, no. I, well, I'll, I'll begin with a little, a little statement of thought about the pre kind of history, which is, which is mainly because the last book was about that. And I, right, right. I feel a need. You know, the funny thing is when you write books, like you're, the last one is like your favorite child. <laughs> and so it's like, this is where I your attention's at right now. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't people love it more? It was great. Um, <laughs> It is really good, yeah. So this no, is. So I don't know about that, but but you would just like you just want to hold it and say it's okay, baby. No, the reviewers, the reviewers will be nicer to you next time. Like, right, no, right. Actually, the reviews have been all good. But but I would say you know in the early you know decades of film, the early early years there were no genres like so people and that's the thing people sometimes you know don't don't think about is. You know, before between 1895 and 1905, motion pictures kind of circulated in all kinds of places, in, in vaudeville halls, at carnivals, state fairs, at magic shows, and they would just be part of the act. It was like a novelty like anything else. It wasn't, you didn't go to sit and watch a movie. And so it was actually in, in Pittsburgh in 1905 when uh, a couple of chaps come up with the idea of, well, let's try and just have a storefront place that just shows movies. And that was what we sometimes call the Nickelodeon boom. Right. Uh, right because it was right. so successful, suddenly everybody was doing it. You know, it's like, oh, wow, that's a really great way. We can just show movies. But in, the, in terms of horror, you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, really, so there are two questions. If someone says, what's the first horror film? There are two answers that both have some justification. The first film that depicts the kind of elements that we think of as horror, so uh, witches or warlocks or ghosts or scary bats, is a Georges Méliès film, The Haunted Castle, at least that's the, the English translation. And that came out in 1896. So this was only a year after projected moving pictures were happening in the first place. But the first film actually really called a horror film or talked about as a horror film, as an actual term, wasn't until 1931 with Dracula. Right, right. And so the little, the little book I just did called A Place of Darkness kind of tries to ask the question, so I won't belabor it too much, but, but tries to ask the question, well, what happened between 1896 and 1931? Because we know there are hundreds, probably thousands of films that use the elements of horror. So we have multiple versions of Jekyll and Hyde. We have uh, uh, Edison Studios did a version of uh, uh, Frankenstein in 1910. We have a couple of unauthorized variations of Dracula, including the more famous Nosferatu. You had Caligari, Phantom of the Opera. So we have all these sorts of films. And so I, what I found was interesting in that book, and then I'll, I'll leave that book alone, was, was trying to figure out not only what was the kind of cultural work those films were doing, but how did the culture understand them without having a genre to call it? So fast forward to the, the, the actual sort of answer to your question, which is the kind of first big film that really provoked this language of horror was, was Dracula in 1931, directed by Todd Browning. And it's not that different than films from the late 20s, films like The Monster or The Cat and the Canary or The Terror. But what it did that other films prior to it, at least the decades prior to it, 
almost all the films that kind of dealt with horror in the teens and 20s, at least American films, were what we sometimes call films of the uncanny, right. uh, which is a question of, is it really a monster or is it not? And for films of the late teens and 20s, at least in America, it was always not actually a monster. So I would call it the Scooby-Doo era <laughs> Uh, the horror film. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. I mean, like literally, the, no matter what the monster was, by the end of the film, they pull off a mask, and it was Mister Drucker from the pharmacy trying right. to steal land or whatever. And that's right. actually not. I mean, that that is, there are plots of teens and twenties films that are not that far from that. Wow. That so so the writers of Scooby Doo were clearly uh, students of film history. I sure. had no uh, idea. Wow, that's fascinating. Oh yeah, no, I mean it's it's like there are so many examples, particularly real estate. That seemed to be an overwhelming. Like people want to get the land or get the house, <laughs> and so they pretend to be, which I don't think has ever happened that I know of. And I and somehow I doubt it would actually work to try and get someone to. <laughs> it does seem sell like a very house cheap. <laughs> it's a convoluted scheme to pull off. Exactly. It, you never it feels know. Like there would be easier ways to get someone to sell you their house. Yeah, you, dress in a sheet. And bang up. You, you never know with house. gentrifiers. You it's know. true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all the hipsters in Brooklyn are going like, wait a minute, wait, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. No offense to Brooklyn. But anyway, so Browning's <laughs> film comes out in 1931, and what it does that was different than a lot of the films prior to it was that the monster is real, that Dracula is supernatural. The film doesn't even make many bones about that. I mean, there are some people who don't believe it, but they're clearly depicted as kind of being naive. And it really is about the entry of supernatural horror. And then particularly for audiences at the time, they acknowledged that. But more importantly, what they focused on with a film like Dracula was that this was not a film that was couched as a romance. And while there are kind of comic relief moments, there's not a comedy element in it it is overwhelmingly focused on terrifying its audience. And, and I think studios prior to that didn't quite believe that audiences would line up. And in fairness, Universal really did not think this was going to be successful. They didn't put much money into it. Um, there was not that much promotion to it. It's kind of like dropped as a, oh yeah, and there's this movie called Dracula that's coming out. No one knows what it means, but what the hell, you know, maybe you'll go see it. <laughs> right. Um, but it exploded. So in fact, there are memos in the uh, Universal archives of executives at Universal saying, wait, can these box office numbers be real? Like people are really <laughs> lining up around the block. Like people are, uh, you know, clamoring for more. And for so of course, as soon as those numbers come in, they green light Frankenstein, which right, in fairness right. is a much better film just from a filmmaking standpoint. And those two become, you know, Dracula's in February of 1931. Uh, Frankenstein's in, in November of 1931. Those become the kind of two pillars that almost the entire horror genre is built on. Wow. Why Why do you think those two were so successful in their era, in that era? Like, how, how do you understand the sort of cultural context that drew audiences to Dracula and Frankenstein? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, I think, I think two, two answers. On the genre front... I think, and this is kind of where the, the book of Place of Darkness ends up, so no need to go buy it because I'm going to tell you the ending. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler, because that's what we all do with academic books. We look and see, did the butler do it at the end? Right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no, you got to read, read it backwards. It's very true. Or like most grad students, you read the intro and the conclusion and you're done. So uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was there too. Yep, um, same. But from a genre standpoint, 
because the films of the teens and 20s had been so embroiled in and almost beholden to this Scooby-Doo model of rationality gets right, like the world gets put back right. Like the world is really right. It's not about the world being gothic or split or irrational. It's just about someone not seeing it right. Right. So it's all about a kind of pragmatic American incredulity that was kind of, that was again, the kind of American epistemological assumption about itself was we're more rational, scientific. We see the world the way it is. We're not beholden to religions or traditions or superstition. And I think from from a genre standpoint, Dracula comes in and inverts that. And so the people who are, pragmatic and rational and incredulous actually are the stupid ones. It's the people willing to entertain the idea of the supernatural. So from a cultural standpoint, why is that? There are probably lots of reasons. And of course, lots of people have written about this. For me, as again, as, as a person who thinks of rhetoric as being heavily embedded in context, I can't help but note that 1931 was the worst year of the Great Depression. Right. Uh, it had the yep. highest unemployment rate, the highest number of bank closings. And it's easy for those of us sort of removed from that to see, you know, I mean, we've had recessions, but we haven't had recessions where the bank closes and your money is gone. Like there's just no money. There's not even the prospect of getting money. Or where you had a government like the Hoover administration saying, oh, well, massive unemployment, Nothing we can do about it. That's the economy, right? So I think for Americans in 1931, and this was, again, a pretty dark, difficult year, the idea that the world had turned upside down and the idea that they were kind of being exploited, I think that resonated. And I think in the midst of that kind of... It's funny, I always make the joke, in the midst of the 30s, there were two kind of popular film genres that popped up. One was Dracula and Frankenstein, and the other was Shirley Temple. (laughs) And I can't make any sense of Shirley Temple at all, but Dracula and Frankenstein <laughs> make sense to me. Oh, wow. That is a fascinating juxtaposition. But I mean, yeah, it, it seems to, I mean, I guess from, from my own perspective of not being an expert on this, I mean, that yeah, the fact that those are like the diametric oppositions seems to say something about, you know, like conflicting responses to that historical moment, right? Are we going to turn inward and focus on, you know, sort of more of the the fact that, oh, maybe this whole system wasn't built on uh, sets of rational assumptions that are keeping it all stable? Or do we want to rather, you know, turn towards like things that make us happy again, right? right. Things that a place of comfort rather than a place of darkness, maybe. Yeah, it's kind of that life is just a bowl of cherries song that was <laughs> big during the Depression as well. That's exactly right, except this least Cherry was coming to eat you, so yes. I guess that was just like... <laughs> but, but I do think I do think you're right about this, you know, and I and it's interesting, this is kind of jumping ahead, but you know, if you look at the history of the genre, I think, and again, there are people that would disagree with this, but I'm bold and I'm old, so I can say whatever I want. For sure. Um, Go for there it. There have been sort of, I would say, three golden ages. Now, we've had horror pretty consistently since the 30s, so it's not like there was a period which didn't have any horror. But the 30s was certainly the first, the first golden age. You get the Dracula and Frankenstein, then a whole kind of massive number of similar kind of films. Kind of peters out about 35, picks back up, lasts until sort of the mid-40s, mid-late 40s. But an incredibly generative period, partly because it's new. Like people are just kind of figuring out what the bounds of this were. So the second golden age, at least I argue, and I think people generally agree with this, starts in 1968. And it's that kind of that dark period of the 70s when, again, partly because the studio system had fallen apart and the production code had fallen apart. And so there wasn't so much, there wasn't legal censorship. So you get this whole massive a number of films that they're still iconic. So, you know, Night of the Living Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween and uh, 
uh, The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left and all this sort of incredibly dark energy kind of exploding out, which of course, 68 was also a really bad year, yep. right? Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, King is assassinated. Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. The Ted Offensive, the unrest at the Democratic National Convention. So not so much economically, but culturally and politically, huge upheaval. Absolutely. And then and then the very next year, you had the Manson murders, right? Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, so you kind of got this already, this kind of sense that the world is somehow darker and more malevolent than we had imagined. And so filmmakers tapping into that found a very willing audience willing to, to watch really dark film. In fairness, I would say that period of the 70s probably produced more kind of vicious and brutal horror films than we've seen since, at least in, in mainstream American cinema. I want to be careful because there's always sub-fringe stuff. So, so then just to kind of conclude, I, I guess I would say arguably now, and I did make this argument, so I suppose I now have to, have to own it, um, <laughs> that we may be in the third golden age of horror now. Right. Ooh, interesting. And so, you, you know, you think about the kind of number of horror. F- so not only has horror been kind of economically successful, and that's kind of the Bloom House model of paranormal activity and insidious and conjuring. So they, these, these are movies making lots of money. Yeah. yeah right. Fighting big audiences. But you're also seeing these kind of remarkably innovative body of films. Again, not all as successful. But you think about Jordan Peele's work in Get Out and then Us. Yes. yes. Yeah. We, we wanted to ask you about Jordan Peele's work because Peele is, I mean, so Peele is a huge fan of Romero's. Right. Which I think is fascinating. Yeah, you're sort of seeing, you know, again, he, I think Peel, uh, Ari Aster, who who made uh, Midsummer and Hereditary. Mm-hmm. You've got, I think, Jennifer Kent, who made The Babadook. So you're getting yeah, these kind right. of really interesting filmmakers creating independent films that are really pushing boundaries. And then a lot of those are kind of finding bigger audiences, which, again, for me, is kind of the definition of a golden age. And then, of course, you know, your listeners or, or you all, we can think about if golden ages are tied into cultural and political turmoil, huh, I wonder where the <laughs> cultural and political turmoil of the moment is coming from. I one, don't know. One looks I'm around. I, I don't know. I honestly, I, I'm doing fine. I don't yeah. know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, there's, not, there's nothing alarming, alarming yeah, or terrifying happening crazy. on no, a regular basis. that theory. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a really good point. And I honestly hadn't thought about those two uh, social facts kind of coinciding but yes, um but yeah but i think so I, so we do want to ask i think eventually about like we had written down jordan peele and ari aster as people we wanted to talk about i think we did want to ask a little bit specifically about uh some of the directors in the in the second golden age uh, which you touch on in your uh in your book dark directions which is reading the films of george romero wes craven and john carpenter through the lens of like auteur theory right and right. looking at these as filmmakers who have you know a strong body of work that explores a variety of really complex themes all throughout them so particularly since we're since we're in Pittsburgh right now it felt appropriate to talk to talk about uh, George Romero and the Living Dead series particularly because i mean a lot of the at least Dawn of the Dead and then i think you also mentioned that uh, Land of the Dead is also is also set ostensibly in Pittsburgh or somewhere around here and and Night of the Living yeah. Dead oh, and Night of the Living well. okay gotcha yeah. gotcha yeah, so I mean, the things that we found really fascinating in your your chapter on George Romero and and the Living Dead series is 
particularly talking about uh, bodies, right, and about how Romero is combining. I think this is a quote from uh, from your chapter. Romero combined within his living dead both the gothic undead creatures from horror's classic phase and the invasion hysteria of the 1950s creature features and did some really interesting things about that. So I was wondering if you could talk just kind of generally about your your thoughts on the Living Dead series and how bodies kind of play into the construction of the thematic universe of George Romero. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Romero is, was one of those. I think he was very, from a kind of critical political perspective, he may be the most interesting of all the horror directors in that so much of his work, in fairness, even the films that kind of were misses, there was a kind of political consciousness to it that was not quite like explicit and allegorical because that is usually painful and no one likes that, but he was always there. And I think, you know, Romero was one of those directors who kind of kept learning and kept trying to keep his work relevant to where the culture was. And so what I found interesting was the way that he used the body. And I think the body across the the body of films that he made, not just the living dead, but other films like the dark half or uh, night riders, et cetera, et cetera. But, right. but certainly in the living dead, the, the bodies of the dead become sort of like the canvas on which Romero writes the cultural ideologies he's critiquing. So whether it's the kind of implicit racial dynamics in night of the living dead that are almost explicit, the questions of consumer capitalism in uh, Dawn of the Dead in 78, the kind of neo-Reagan militarism that comes out in the dead in uh, a Day of the Dead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or even the kind of, you know, fragmented class politics that I feel like was kind of prescient. Of Incredibly what prescient. Absolutely. In, in the Land of the Dead series. So, uh, film. so, I mean, I feel like Romero was a filmmaker who, who kind of had a particular mode of focusing on the physical body as a kind of representation of, of particular ideological points. And what to me was interesting in kind of that chapter and that part of the book was to try to trace how he did that in different settings with different ideologies and at different points across his career. And I think, I mean, my, my personal, like the thing that I, that I love so much about that chapter was in your analysis of those films, one of the things that you point out is that there's obviously like a kind of visceral terror that derives from seeing the undead bodies, right? And the form, the sort of abject form of the living dead and how that, you know, sort of like reminds us of our own mortality and that it's not so much a, let's see, what is it? Oh yeah. Sorry. I've got a quote up here that I wanted to read from. So the threat in each film you write uh, is driven largely by the narrative conceit that once the integrity of a person's body is violated by one of the living dead, he or she will inevitably become one of them. In an ironic sense, this is not the usual threat in a horror film, which is to be killed. Victims of the living dead are not so much in danger of dying as in losing what is believed to constitute their humanity. And this is ultimately a matter of losing one's attachment to the cultural constraints that make up our sense of civilization and ourselves as human beings. And what's so great about that, too, is that you point out that in all of these films, the undoing of all of the characters, it's not so much, I guess the exception would be Land of the Dead, that they're, you know, overtaken by the dead and like the strength of the dead themselves, but they're undone by their inability to forge community and and solidarity amongst each other, right? Yeah, the th in some ways it's the irony that the same things that make us humans, our language, our sense of identity, our sense of culture, is the exact thing that tears us apart and ends up making us just bodies. Although in fairness, every time I look at a zombie movie, I sort of think, I feel like being a zombie is not that bad. Right? <laughs> 
Oh yeah. And there I, are no I, bills. There's no deadlines. <laughs> there's not an editor asking when you're going to get a journal review in. <laughs> I mean, you just kind of shuffle around, and every once in a while, you eat somebody. I feel like I could do that. I feel like <laughs> that's I, I'm that's going to be my alt act trajectory. I think is going to I'm just going to become exactly a zombie right. after this. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that points to something you were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation. The idea of like, you know, horror is a can be a very like affirming genre and like set of signifiers for people who feel marginalized. Even these these scary characters and these kind of villain monsters can become like an empowering identity for people to uh, interpolate themselves into. Yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm I really love, although I, I have not done as much of this as, as I would, but I'm, I'm a student of some of the great folks, including people in, in our field broadly who are doing work around monstrosity, which I think is a kind of related but slightly separate concept. So I think I've said Bernadette Calafell, Marina Lavina, who's at the University of Memphis. There are a lot of folks really interested in this question of monstrosity beyond just its filmic or narrative depiction, but monstrosity as a cultural concept that is both kind of marginalizing, but also something that some communities can appropriate and kind of find a level of empowerment in. You know, there's, there's an interesting sort of side story. When Dracula came out in 1931 and was doing very, very well, I think I mentioned Universal was quite puzzled by its success. And one of the sort of memos or reports that is in the Universal archives was that uh, this kind of question that said, uh, we've noticed that Dracula is doing, you know, kind of disproportionately well in urban African-American theaters. Huh. Uh, we should probably look into, you know, kind of what, why that, what, what's the attraction. Uh, as far as I know, Universal didn't pursue the question, but I think people like Califel and Levine and others, or Eric King Watts, for, for example, are looking more into this idea that for communities that are marginalized by dominant culture, the monster actually potentially provides a, a source of sympathetic kind of empowerment. Well, and, and that's particularly, I think, at play in Romero's films, as you point out, you know, the protagonists in all of the original Living Dead films are African-Americans, right? Or you have at least like one character in there, like in Night of the Living Dead, obviously, that's kind of the, well, spoiler alert here, but, you know, the film ends with the last remaining survivor in the in the farmhouse who ends up getting shot because he's mistaken for one of the dead and then ends up you know getting getting burned on a pyre truly one of the great endings in american film like yeah no the, it's yeah. it's powerful endings in film it's incredibly yeah. shocking like uh, the first time i saw it like i was genuinely gobsmacked by that ending because it's i mean like you were saying about the sort of political valences of Romero's films, it's it's very, it's it very much doesn't beat you over the head with it. But like that ending was so fiercely political that it's it's almost the most shocking and terrifying part of the film. It is. No, I agree. I agree completely. I guess in terms of how these characters are portrayed, as well as the the ways in which the dead are portrayed. It does seem to be a, you know, that, that Romero was very interested in issues of race and, like, identity-based marginalization, right? You, you point out how throughout, like, as he's developing the Dead series, the dead become, don't you basically argue, they become more and more human, in fact. Sure, yeah. I think anybody who watches Land of the Dead, I mean, it, the, the, as he's called in the credits, Big Daddy, is the sort of gas station attendant. And he is clearly a conscious character who makes, who has agency and makes decision and ends up killing the bad guy. And again, I think you can't help but watch that film and think about 
you know, the, the Malcolm X's statement that chickens have come home to roost. I mean, there's clearly a sense of, uh, to me, there's a clear sense or gesture towards American colonialism in the world and what happens when you continually exploit and damage people that at some point, you know, you get burned by that. And I feel like Romero was very conscious of that. And I think that's a big part of the film, again, where the dead become not just anonymous, nameless threats, but are actually part of the ideological mix. Absolutely. Well, and especially because that, you know, land I think was released in 2005, was it? And, you know, of course, that's right in the wake of, you know, the invasion of Iraq and all of these other sort of, you know, colonial exploits in the Middle East as well. So it's like, yeah, I think I think you're right. It was a very prescient critique at the time that that came out. So so I think we want to shift now into talking a little bit about John Carpenter. So you know, you talk in Dark Directions about The Thing and how The Thing by John Carpenter kind of marked the end of that second golden age in a certain way because when it came out in 1982 was a a huge failure, actually, even though, you know, I first saw it probably in the early 2000s or the mid 2000s and I loved it. Like it was, you know, like instantly became one of my favorite horror movies. But I guess at the time when that came out, it was a total flop. Whereas Carpenter had also made Halloween four years earlier, and it was a massive success. So can you talk about Carpenter's work and how it reflected some of the the context of the time? Absolutely. No, I, I honestly would say I think The Thing is probably the kind of most perfect example of the second golden age. I mean, not dismissing other films. And in fairness, I still say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is pound for pound the best horror <laughs> film ever made. It's so good. But I will so say that the, that the thing kind of like takes all of the negative nihilistic energy of the 70s and condenses it into one beautifully made, brilliant practical effects, well-directed, well-acted. I mean, it's everything you could hope for for an example of that era, but it just missed its date. It just came in after the expiration date of that genre. And I think if you think about the cultural shift, and this is back to the point we were talking about earlier, you know, horror is always connected to its culture. You're right, right. So in 72, 74, or even 78, you know, you're talking about still a pretty dark period. There's a recession. There's a thing called stagflation, which I remember right. well, which was <laughs> right. both inflation yep. and stagnation. There were, you know, uh, you, you couldn't buy gas except on days that, that matched your uh, uh, license plate. There was still the aftermath of Vietnam. And this was right. the time of like a lot of the scandals surrounding the intelligence community as well, like things coming out about what the CIA had been doing. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. So this is Nixon's enemy list and co-intel pro. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, this is just, a you know, White ha- the Watergate happens, you know, so all this sort of 70, 68 to say 79, you have this kind of unrelenting sense of American failure, uh, which I think Carpenter really captures is that the frontier has turned and now it's coming for us, right? We, we're all in, every Carpenter film is about pulling back, pulling back, pulling back. Right, right. So the thing comes out and embodies that, embodies brutality and viciousness and horror and terrifying special effects. But it missed because the Reagan revolution was in full swing and Reagan yeah. said it's a new dawn in America yep. right. and we're going to be proud again and we're going to quit looking at our negative and uh, there's a great story that's probably I mentioned in the book, but John Carpenter says, uh, you know, he kind of admits the thing killed his career, although he made a lot of films after that, but it, but it killed his mainstream career. And he knew he was in trouble when he saw E.T. <laughs> because E.T. came out just a little bit before the thing. Right. 
And the same studio, and the studio believed that E.T. was going to be this kind of throwaway film from that Spielberg guy who'd made some, you know, shark movie. Right, um, right. <laughs> no one's, no one's going to go see that. It's goofy. It's, a, it's about a little fluffy alien, and, you know, he eats Reese's Pieces. Who's going who's gonna to ever go for that? <laughs> and they thought the thing was going to be their tentpole because, again, it fit with action, adventure, Kurt Russell, violence, alien, invasion. It was like, it was like alien. It was like all these movies that had been successful. Um, and of course, E.T. was a massive cultural phenomena, and the thing was considered violent pornography and too dark and too nihilistic. And and that cultural shift had happened, and and Carpenter kind of didn't catch it. And in fairness, as a filmmaker, he never was able to really adapt to that. He 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 made a lot of films in his career post that. He's he's still alive, so he might make another one. But I don't think as a filmmaker he's ever been able to adjust his kind of cinematic vision to the world as it changed in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, your, your, your kind of threshold concept for understanding Carpenter's work is space, right? Similar to Romero explores bodies in this really powerful way, and you, you argue that Carpenter explores space in interesting ways. So I, I wanted to uh, zoom, I mean, because this is our Halloween episode, I yeah. wanted to <laughs> zoom particularly in on that movie, Halloween from 78, how do you see space as implicated in in that movie? Because there's obviously the killer returns to his kind of family space, right? And and that space is is invaded. But can you talk a little bit about how that concept plays out in Halloween? Yeah. So in my view, there are at least kind of three core spatial concepts that work in almost all of Carpenter's films and, and are tied into this idea of you know kind of space and geography, but also kind of like the the, again, for me, the key to all of Carpenter's films is the traditional American mythological narrative is progress and going out into unknown lands to make them known lands. And Carpenter's are almost all about familiar spaces suddenly becoming unfamiliar as the unknown pushes back against this kind of collapsing frontier or receding frontier. So the kind of three key concepts there, one is that there's always in Carpenter's films, or almost always, some kind of boundary threshold usually the protagonist is told, do not go to that place. Right, um, right. So in the thing, you can think about they, they leave their camp to go to the Norwegian camp, and then that brings the whole thing back. So Halloween's an interesting example because it's not quite explicit, but but it, it's there. I mean, it's, it's people often don't notice it. So one of the longstanding questions about Halloween is why does Michael Myers obsess about the Jamie Lee Curtis character? Right, right? Why right. is Laurie his absolute obsession? Subsequent films would suggest that she was his sister, that she had been adopted after the initial murder. Oh. Um, but that's not anywhere in the first movie. Like, in right. fairness, the, the second movie was written entirely, so there's no particular reason to think Carpenter or Hill or any Steve O'Bannon or any of the people working on Halloween were thinking, oh, yes, this is his sister. Right, right. But the pivotal moment is, and, and people who have seen the film recently or are about to watch it will, will notice it, as Laurie is walking her young uh, uh, charge, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, but the young baby boy she's going to babysit, she's walking him to school, and she turns to the Myers house and says, oh, I've just got to go drop these keys off for my father, the real estate agent. And the young boy says, you can't go up there. That's the boogeyman's house. Um, you're not allowed to go up there. And she laughingly dismisses and says, oh, yes, I am. And she walks up on the stairs and drops the keys through the mail slot and turns. And just as she walks away, we see Michael Myers' head pop into the screen. Yeah, right. And it is from that moment on that she will be his obsession. So all of the murders, uh, all the carnage that is in Halloween, all triggered by that moment 
when Lori becomes the target. There's no particular reason to think before that that she was the target. It is that moment where she crosses the threshold into the forbidden place and then opens up the, the, the terrors that will follow. She's also playing, she's playing a material role in selling, you know, what Michael views as his property. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's also just like almost at an existential or spiritual level. You can almost think of it like old time religion where people say that it, those are the sacred woods. You are not allowed to go into the sacred yes. woods. Yep. So don't go in the sacred woods, stupid. But of course, we do, right? That's what we do. Course, we go like, oh, I'm not supposed to go in there? Well, or people say, don't open that closet. It's like, now all I want to do is open that closet. Yeah, exactly. I have to know what it is that keeps me from opening that closet. And so Laurie does that. And again, if you think of other John Carpenter, like the one that jumps to mind is, uh, that, that's maybe even more explicitly kind of corporate, a much later film called Ghosts of Bars. That's not a good film at all. But uh, <laughs> it's all about these, these mining companies on Mars who are kind of told don't mine in that ancient area. They do, and they open up this sort of portal full of Martian ghosts who then come start possessing people and creating all kinds of carnage and mass destruction. In, in Halloween, it's not quite so overarchingly specific, but it is very clear that once Laurie crosses that threshold, she opens up this sort of, this kind of gothic space. So the second, and I'll be quicker on the other two, but the second that, that's quite profound, and again, a, a trope that Carpenter uses a lot, is once you move into this kind of gothic space of the film, suddenly the world is emptied of people. Yeah, uh, and so for me, and again, I, I've said this a few times, but you know, I, I was a, a kid. I went to see Halloween, and I was probably nine, oh. uh, and living at that time in a kind of uh, kind of suburbany rural area in North Texas. And so the scene that sticks out in my mind as being like hours long, although I think I actually timed it, it's like forty eight seconds, is when Lori runs out of the house. She's finally encountered Michael for the first time. She runs out of her house, uh, the babysitter house. And she goes running door to door, banging on doors. And you see people turn on the lights, look out, turn off the lights, close the shutters. Yep. And that to me, you know, again, and there's, and there's like, you can also notice like in Halloween, there are no parents. Like the parents are just completely absent. And the police are kind of like, you know, Keystone cops are not really relevant. So this kind of empty, barren world where there is no authority, no help, no normalcy, no right, no parents, no neighbors to come save you. Uh, and it really is left to Lori to navigate this now quite desolate space. And then the last uh, trope that kind of works its way out in Halloween is the siege. And so you think about the kind of last act of the film is Lori in the house where she's babysitting, kind of running and hiding and trying to avoid Michael, who just keeps popping up everywhere she least expect him until the kind of shocking ending of the film. So for me, those kind of spatial motifs become crucial to the way Halloween plays out what could be a fairly standard and derivative story, but become much more chilling and disturbing when it's really set in this kind of generic American space that suddenly becomes a kind of empty Gothic space of danger. Absolutely. Yeah. After that last line, I just want to edit in like a little bit of the Halloween uh, film score. Oh, yeah, I, definitely. You should do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Also also uh, produced by uh, John Carpenter, right? Yeah, 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 he also produced the brilliant, brilliant score. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think, well, I mean, just to kind of round out the discussion of Dark Directions, your second book on the horror film genre, we also wanted to talk a little bit about Wes Craven. And the the one film that we kind of zoned in on here was Scream, I think, as well as Nightmare on Elm Street to a certain extent, too. This was kind of the slasher subgenre kind of came to dominate horror in the 1990s and the 2000s. So in what ways do you think films like Scream and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street kind of exemplify the millennial appeal of the slasher? Like, why was that kind of, you know, like a film style that that dominated that era? Yeah, I mean, I think Wes Craven, it's funny, Wes Craven is kind of arguably the most successful of all of these uh, kind of iconic filmmakers, although he's the one that is most often left out of conversations about it. But, you know, he had a big success and quite a cultural shock with his early films like Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes then kind of drifted off into kind of really bad crappy movies <laughs> comes back with a nightmare on elm street that again is really he just directed the first one and i think the, the kind of more or less last one not part of the, all the sequels but it was it was again that film in 1984 nightmare on elm street kind of took the traditional slasher and rewrote it into this much more gothic split world right so there's the world of the waking and the world of dreams and that addition of that kind of gothic subplot or, or kind of gothic uh, motif revives the slasher films. And in fairness, both Halloween and you know Friday the 13th had kind of done themselves to death. Like there's just only so many times Jason can hack up some kid in a, sl- a sleeping bag before it starts to lose interest. So Nightmare on Elm Street kind of comes and, and brings that. And again, that, that kind of revives the slasher genre into the 80s. Again, starts to kind of dwindle out. You've got a series of kind of slasher films in the early, mid-90s that are much more grounded in reality. So here you're talking about like Silence of the Lambs, Copycat, and Seven. And then in comes Wes Craven again, sort of third time's a charm, once again successful by taking the kind of slasher genre and reframing it in this kind of postmodern, self-referential awareness but and i think this is what made the scream trilogy or eventually four films uh, so successful craven was able to make it self-conscious to play with parody mm-hmm. but never stop being scary yeah absolutely so they never really became sort of parodies or lampoons of themselves they always kept a kind of driving element of fear and anxiety and there, there were there were consequences and stakes in the scream trilogy that were not always there for some of the other like urban legend or uh, other film i know what you did last summer they, they didn't quite have the scares and the gravity that craven was able to bring to the films yeah i mean i think scream i don't know i don't know how you feel alex like for me it of the kind of horror films we've been talking about i don't i don't actually find it as scary as yeah. some of the other ones and i think part of it is attributable to that postmodernist sensibility where it's almost like winking too much that it kind of takes you out of it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's still it's still definitely an enjoyable film, but but that was I, I recently just rewatched Scream in preparation for for this conversation and, and you know, just to get into the spirit of the season. But like but yeah, that was one of the things that I noticed is like while it was like it was very enjoyable on almost like an intellectual level, you know, and particularly because I'm someone who's drawn to, you know, films that are self self-referential meta sort of about genre and about the thing that they are, you know, that that are actively, you know, talking about the thing that they're doing. But yeah, there's almost like it, it's almost like that layer of ironic remove uh, between, the, you know, what you're watching and the thing that it's about. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I still did think that I mean, there are still some genuinely terrifying parts 
but particularly with with Scream, it took that blurring that sort of the thin line between reality and the world of illusion, I think is how you phrase that uh, in your book. I guess I would say, and again, you know, some of these things are subjective, so I I totally get it. I also think some films kind of weather better than others, but to me, what, what keeps Scream from becoming just a kind of funny parody is Nev Campbell's performance as Sydney. Yeah. Because if yeah. you focus on her as as a character, she never accepts the kind of postmodern irony. She doesn't look at the camera. She when when people are making there's there's a scene where other high schoolers, of course they're all 30 years old, but anyway, right. high schoolers and <laughs> big scare quotes are are laughing about the murders. She's the one who said, "How can you laugh about this?" I mean, it, it, and sometimes a performance like that could really jar because it doesn't fit. But I feel like she becomes the kind of emotional, moral core of the film. And so whatever consequences there are, are all made real because she doesn't accept the postmodern world. She's not willing to live in this fantasy world where people just die and it's all funny. She kind of keeps herself grounded. And so it's, it's really one of the best performances uh, in horror films that, that, that I can think of. I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Especially in contrast to like, you know, Matthew Lillard's performance in that it's just <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> Even as he's dying, he's just sort of like laughing about it almost. Too. Right. <laughs> like, well, I'm and, dying here, man. <laughs> well, and, and, and I guess, you know, to, to be fair to scream, like this is a, an incredibly prescient aspect of the film yeah. as well. I mean, part of what gives it verisimilitude is that there are, killers growing up watching horror movies and taking what they have learned from them like into reality sure yeah and even just at the broader point the degree to which cinema and other media frame our reality and i would say if i can sort of be slightly more uh, glum or or uh, profoundly cynical in a way they tell us whose lives count and who don't yeah right? the, the fact that True. right now turkish troops are are, are marching into North Syria and disrupting and probably killing lots of Syrian civilians and, and Kurdish civilians yep. and their lives don't matter because they're not framed by the TV as mattering. Right. That that's, I think there's a kind of more profound, there's a, there's a very profound and disturbing point about the level of what counts and what doesn't, whose deaths matter and whose don't. Well, and I mean, to that, to that point, I, I think that it would be actually, you know, good to kind of return to, this third golden era, the one that you know potentially we're living through right now. Right. Uh, I mean, this was th- this forms a good transition point to talk about something like I mean, Jordan Peele's films jump to mind immediately yes, right. in terms of whose lives matter and and whose do not. So yeah, and and I do in terms of Peele's most recent film, Us, which I loved. I mean, that Absolutely. that might be my favorite. That might be my favorite movie of the year as of right now. What's really amazing about Us is it's very intertextual with earlier horror films. I mean, I think there's a sure. there's a line in it that's almost a direct reference to Dawn of the Dead where one of the children asks like who are they and an, one of the other members of the family says they're us. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a you know Literally, almost yeah. word for word a line <laughs> an, an an exchange in Dawn of the Dead. Right. No, Peel is clearly a, a, a masterful sort of student of the genre and, and, and both you know television, pop culture, but certainly the horror genre. And I think a little bit like I actually think Peel and Craven kind of there's an echo there because you know he he's very conscious of the genre. He's very conscious of being a student of the genre, of weaving it in. But I guess the other thing I'd say about Peel's uh, at least the two horror films we've had so far, they both use a slightly light and humorous frame to keep the horror at least a little bit at a distance and the politics more in the foreground. 
Right. Yeah, right. Definitely. And for me, that was even more pronounced in us where, again, other than Lupita Nyong'o and, and her sort of dual performance as the, as the mother and the tethered and whatever that relationship ends up being, I won't spoil it for people, but everybody else kind of has a little bit of a wink throughout the film. Yeah, that's true. And there's even a great moment near the end where the, the, the husband, the father and his daughter are just escaping in the ambulance. And I don't remember, but they're looking at all the tethered and the, the, this moment and the father makes, and I don't remember the joke, but like the very worst example of a dad joke. <laughs> and the daughter like literally looks at him and rolls her eyes. It's like, <laughs> that, that just is such a kind of like wink moment. Yeah. And yet, by virtue of, I think, the kind of central performance and the politics, the, the critical aspect becomes more prominent because the fear aspect is kind of kept a little bit at a distance. So I, I think Peel's quite masterful at making sure the politics don't get overshadowed by the monstrosity or the horror. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I mean, that that to me has always been like, the, the to be frank, like the scariest parts of Jordan Peele's films and what makes them actually scary is their politics and right. is their, the way in which they are able to frame, you know, a certain facet of political reality in these very stark terms, you know, that, I mean, it's very frank. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember when, when I saw us, it was shortly after the massacre in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, Right. um, Same. And, and that was really on my mind at the time, or like, as soon as I finished watching the movie, I, that all kind of came rushing back to me that, that, that that was the, so, so stepping out of the movie and back into kind of the social context after watching it was, was really disturbing for me. And I, and I think it was because, as you say, the politics are so foregrounded in his movies. Yeah, it's, it's not quite allegory because he doesn't quite beat you over the head with it. And I also think he's very smart at keeping the narrative complicated. So it's not like a simple, you know, like animal farm, you know, the pigs are <laughs> communists and the farmers are fascists and whatever. It's more complicated than that. It's more nuanced than that. And yet... By not having us screaming, he's actually forcing us to think. And I think that's quite a masterful stroke for a a great filmmaker. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Ari Aster, if we could, too. Um, yeah. So so I've not I've not yet seen Hereditary. Uh, I did see Midsummer, which, to be honest, was like one of I, that. That probably for me was one of the top movies I saw this year. Now, we should say well, that, yes. that we, we have a natural bias because it is about Ph.D. students. Yes. Yeah. It <laughs> is actually about academia, uh, which is. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The, the part about uh, I think Calvin, Calvin and I actually went to see that together. And the moment where one I of the characters says, you said, need to just get your prospectus done yes oh my god we looked at each other and we just like we just burst out laughing in the middle of this movie theater it was it was a beautiful graduate moment. students across the country all groaned at that line oh yes. i know we exactly. know <laughs> absolutely talk about horror yeah no kidding that was <laughs> truly truly terrifying i was <laughs> Made me wonder why I was out at a, watching a movie rather than... That's <laughs> working, right. Get back, finish your perspective. Exactly, exactly. So Ari Aster has been really interesting in sort of, you know, contributing to this genre that we might call, like, folk horror, right? And I think, uh, oh, man, what's the... Shoot, I just looked up his name. The the person who oh, directed Robert Eggers, Robert Eggers as well, uh, who directed The Witch uh, oh, and sure. is and the the forthcoming uh, The Lighthouse, right. that are you know that kind of trade in these images of like the pastoral, right, or the the sort of idyllic family setting, or or you know like in Midsummer the Commune that 
really sort of you know denaturalize these spaces by by bringing you into this almost sort of like supernatural or gothic just bringing out the dimensions of that in a very almost like psychedelic and and strange way so i was wondering if you had any thoughts on their on those films like this folk horror genre as well as its resonance with our current cultural moment yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, particularly there's been a lot of British folk horror that kind of came at or around the same time that uh, that Oster was working with Hereditary and Midsummer. And I'll just cook a, a plug for a film uh, that's quite, quite interesting. Very, very stark, very, very brutal. It's a, a movie that may pop up probably on streaming services called Gwen. Uh, it was uh, directed by a guy named William McGregor, and it's set in North Wales. And it really kind of embraces a lot of that gothic sense. But I think, you know, I think it is because we're at a moment where we're very conscious about the environment, but also very conscious about our cultures right. and very True. scared about our cultures as well as scared about our environment. So I can't help but feel that some of this folk horror is kind of picking up on. You think about the way in which like in Midsummer or or uh, in The Witch, there's a great uh, recent film called The Ritual any number of these kind of folk horror, the 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 landscape itself becomes the embodiment of terror. Like just the trees or the plains become Absolutely. this really terrifying entity within the film. Yeah, yeah, and in in Midsummer, the the characters are all kind of starting to merge with nature in in ways that are both like trippy and intoxicating, but also terrifying in their consequences. Yeah. Yeah, really blurring that line between what we think of as human, what we think of as non-human, which again, I think these are the things that are going on in the culture at the moment. I mean, as we're, as we're talking about the Anthropocene and we're kind of looking at the environment, we're watching icebergs break off and, and melt away and, uh, you know, rainforests blazing. It's hard not to look at the environment around us and think, does it want us here? <laughs> right yeah, now? yeah, right. absolutely. No, and and that's. I mean, I think not to not to keep you know hitting on Midsummer. I mean, I could talk about this one all day, but I think one of the one of the reasons why that point is particularly well taken with that film is that I mean, the uh, a lot of the real hot takes that I saw being delivered after after Midsummer came out was like, oh well, the people in the commune are right. They're the ones who actually have like a, <laughs> sure. a sense of a sense of like the, how to sustainably live among you know like I mean, and it offers the the main character an escape from her own cultural backdrop which has you know essentially like completely disintegrated around her this offers her a hope of like a new community where people recognize their place within the natural order so to speak in addition to yeah just get, getting her away from a crappy boyfriend but yeah. um, but i think who steals a dissertation topic i think yes, you know that was yep. the yes that which was is the also, core yeah, no academic sin. integrity violation absolutely yeah. absolutely inexcusable <laughs> so and clearly no irb approval which of course for those Not of us who are advisors are going like you can't do that you can't do that you get in trouble with that. Are you crazy? yeah, yeah exactly. i don't think like, body horror is is liked very much by, by the irb, IRB. Yeah, yeah they yeah. probably yeah. would they probably would yeah uh, it's american irb systems they're, they're not as progressive I mean, as the swedish yeah, ones this but, yeah. might have been a slight problem no i agree completely no i think i think it's interesting actually some of these films that are kind of raising a uh, big question because you you leave midsummer and it is kind of hard to know if it was triumphal or fatal, yeah. um, what, how to understand that. And I think that's actually, for me, Midsummer. I'll be honest, I, I liked Midsummer a lot. I was not a big fan of Hereditary. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. I can appreciate it. I get it. I have friends who love it and, and bash me constantly for not liking it. <laughs> no, I agree with you, actually. Uh, uh, you know, the, of the two, I, I connected much more strongly with Midsummer. I mean, for me, I guess the, the reason for that, I was trying, and I've spent time, I watched Hereditary like three times trying to figure out why I don't like it. 
In fact, I find I spend a lot more time watching the films I don't like trying to figure out why is this not working, <laughs> which may just be a masochistic streak. I'm not quite sure. Sure, yeah. <laughs> we all, we all have it, yeah. We all just like, why does that not work? Let me try it again. Um, <laughs> but I think that for me, the biggest issue with Hereditary was it's a certain film in the first act and a certain film in the second act, and then it takes this really bizarre dramatic turn in the third act, but I don't feel like it was earned. Right. Mm, like yeah. for me, when, when, when the Tony Collette character is crawling on the ceiling, it's like, no, you didn't earn that. Like, that's yeah, that's shocking, how I felt you, too. It, it, you, you just jumped to that. But Midsummer, from almost the beginning, it's laying the foundation for the movement from the opening scene in the apartment to the ending. It is a much smoother, coherent trajectory. And as an audience member, even though I end up in a really weird place, I kind of, I was there the whole time. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think I think for me, like what's so interesting about Ari Aster is that it, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about at the, be- the very beginning of this conversation. The idea that horror is a strange genre because we're paying money to to be shown things that we don't want to see. And Aster is like one of the few directors where like I literally have to cover my eyes at times in his movies. Sure. No, it's brutal. I mean, he pushes. He really pushes the body horror. And I think... Midsummer is very profound because it kind of zooms that out to like a cultural level. I find that it's a really it's almost a provocative take on the idea of cultural relativism. Yeah. That, you know, are there cultures that we can encounter that that we feel like genuinely horrified by, but then you take a step back and you reflect on the horrors in your own culture and and to what extent it it even makes sense to draw those kinds of comparisons or make, you know, neat moral judgments. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the shocking death of the, the two older people, not to spoil anything for people who haven't seen it, you know, is brutal and it's savage. And yet when you sit back and reflect what we do with senior citizens, yes. yep. I'm not sure we're more, I'm yeah. not sure we would be called civilized. Absolutely. No, that was my reaction too. Exactly. Yeah. Now, so I think it's a great era for horror. And I think you've got great stuff coming out. Stuff that's really, really interesting, partly because there's so many different mediums. So like, you know, Netflix and Amazon, there's a shuttered streaming service. That, that are producing, I would say, I won't necessarily say producing great stuff. I would say they're giving opportunity to filmmakers to make interesting, different kind of stuff. And then you get films like, you know, Ready or Not, which made a fair amount at the box office, quite a fascinating little film. And even things like the Annabelle series and the Conjuring series. And I think in some extent, even the more re- this recent kind of film, Joker, which is not a horror film, but really borrows a lot from horror films. Yeah. I think all those to me add up to say, we're at a moment when this kind of dark, disturbing turn in our cultural imaginary makes sense to us. And for rhetoric scholars, I think the question is to kind of to figure out why and then how that's working. Like kind of, what kind of cultural work are those dark cinematic narratives doing for a culture that is feeling kind of dark and despairing? I think that's a beautiful little rhetorical question uh, to kind of leave it on. I know we, we've kept you here for quite a long time. So thank you again, Kendall, for having this really amazing, thought-provoking conversation. No, for me as well. Thank you all. And it, it's great to chat about this with two smart people who, oh. who uh, know the films and know rhetoric, which I, it's rare for me to get a chance to talk about with people, <laughs> to talk with people who kind of are on both sides of that fence. So I, I'm deeply appreciative of the chat. Yeah, like, we're, ex- we're extremely nerdy in both ways. Uh, <laughs> and take great pleasure in that. Again, Kendall, your most recent book is A Place of Darkness, uh, The Rhetoric of Horror in Early American Cinema. Uh, is there anything else, any current work that you'd like to plug or anything that you'd like to have promoted on the podcast? 
I just me. I just want you to promote me. I just want more <laughs> yes. love. I want uh, you. You also have a, you, you also have a Twitter, do you not? I do. I have a Twitter called at Dark Projections because I'm cheesy like that. Um, <laughs> my wife makes endless fun of my book title, so I'll say I've written a, I've written this thing. I've got a title, you know, Projected Fears, and she rolls her eyes and says, "Oh God, you're really <laughs> going to call it that?" Um, but yeah, I would say, yeah, the, on the Twitter is where I kind of do uh, more of the kind of film cultural stuff. And so I'm kind of slightly more focused on that than, say, rhetorical theory or even the public memory stuff. But yeah, I mean, the, the you know, right now it's uh, just kind of trying to figure out this moment. And uh, what I, I'm, I would suppose broadly what I'm interested in at the moment is if we're in the third golden age of, of horror, what does it tell us that we're also in a golden age of heroes? So you think about mm. the, the kind of overwhelming dominance of the Marvel Cinematic Universe right. yeah, over the last right. decade or so. True. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at, like at least conceptually, trying to think cool. what, what does it mean to have these two strands of cinematic narrative dominating at the same time? So I don't know where that'll lead me, but, you know, somewhere I think. That's somewhere. fascinating. Well, again, thank you so much for being with us. Kendall Phillips, this was a real, real joy. We thank really you. appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock, with production assistance from Ben Williams. Reverb's co-producers at large are Caitlin Rossi, Sophie Wadzak, and Ryan Mitchell. Our graphic design manager is Kari Van Nortwick, and our social media manager is Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.